Look, I have a moderately okay karaoke voice, and I don't need to ruin my reputation on our fucking podcast. I don't need to ruin my karaoke reputation as well. Your parents already can never listen to the pod. Fuck no. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely not. Welcome, my friends. Welcome to my chocolate. Welcome to Fans Labyrinth, the podcast where we discuss all your favorite indie flicks and genre television. I am your host, Lydia, and this is my co-host. Joseph, hey, hi, how are you? Hola, como estas? Ça va bien. I, I feel like... I, I'll <laughs> find out the German, the Japanese, it'll be good one day. At least find out the German. You're trying to learn the damn language and you can't even say, how are you? (laughs) I mean, you're like, you're halfway through at least moderately competent conversational fluency. You might as well just finish. Somebody on one of the upper floors of my apartment building must have gotten into like some kind of a domestic with their partner. Because I went out this morning to go and pick up a package. And when I got home, a shitload of clothes were scattered all over the like little courtyard lawn outside my apartment. And it's right outside my kitchen window. And I hate the fact that I'm like such a nosy person. But I've been waiting all day for whoever it is to come and collect their shit. Just because like. Oh my God. It's like I know. I know that they're like scraping up the last vestiges of their dignity as they go and collect their belongings from the courtyard that two buildings and the street face. But it's right outside my kitchen window. Like, what am I supposed to do? Pretend that there's not somebody out there collecting their belongings? So embarrassing for them. I want to see who it is. Love it. Oh, my God. I love it so much. And it's all, like, fucking pink and cheetah print and stuff. And I'm just like, yeah. Yeah, that feels accurate to this situation. Yeah. I think if that was me, I just, like, wouldn't go get it. Mm. You know, I'd be like, that stuff's a loss. I can't, I don't want to be, I don't want to admit that that's my shit that got thrown out. And I think to me, the best part of it is that whoever threw it out the window had to go to the effort of actually removing the screen from the smallest window in the entire apartment just to throw it out as far back into the courtyard as they could. Jeez. To make it as embarrassing as possible to like go get it. Because it's the bedroom windows are way bigger. They're at the front of the house where your clothes are kept. But no, they went to the back of the apartment where the kitchen is and popped the screen out of the tiniest window just to do this. And I'm like, that's fantastic. Um, yeah. Shadow and Bone. We both watched it. Okay, so we're going to jump into media after my long-winded story of, like, betrayal and domestics. Yeah. All right. Uh, no segue into watched. Shadow and Bone, but it is one we both watched, and we've chatted a little bit about... Media of the week. So, um, what did you think? You seem to get through it very quickly. What? I mean, it's very bingeable. I will say that. Like, it's it's very easy to follow. 
and like relatively charming. So it's it's pretty bingeable. I will say like it suffers from what most of these like YA kind of TV shows suffer from. And like that's the fact that the main character is yep. the most bland, boring character of the entire series. And I don't understand like Vampire Diaries is the same thing. It's like even even Sabrina. The title character was lame after like the I, first season. She's and she was like she was iconic to me at least. Like she had a look. Her looks yeah. were her looks were, but her as an actual character was super boring. She's a little boring. I I liked. I, I'll say I do I do like her. I'll stand by her. I like her. All right, fine. But like, but Shadow and Bone. Yeah. Whereas I think Archie from Riverdale is like iconic looking and hot, but like has no personality. It's unreal. I don't think any of them have personality in Riverdale. They're all very bland. Yeah, the main character was Alina Starkov. Thank you. I already forgot her name. Played by Jessie Mae Lee. Mm-hmm. She was like, she's super cute, and she's not bad. No, like her acting was solid. It's just the character is fucking boring. Um, and Mal, her best friend boyfriend mm-hmm. guy, was also very boring. Archie Renault. Wow, really? His name's Archie. All right. Um, but yeah, I yeah, mean, this is this is boring. the thing. Might as well finish up the 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 character. But it's like I, it's it's sad, but I for me, don't want to be boring and you know anti diverse or whatever. But the two best characters were Kaz, the leader of the Crows, who's a white guy, played by Freddie Carter, and he it just great look, great great feeling and presence in a room. In the show, just yeah, he was very heroin hot. Yeah. You know what I mean, like '90s heroin chic, sexy. Uh, that's yeah. that's what he had going on. I thought you meant heroin, as in like he's playing like a girl who's a hero, and I'm like, sure. Oh no, I that's a direction. Very much so. <laughs> I very much so meant the drug. Yes, he's very uh, very good. He he had like a like what's his name Charlie Heaton or whatever the guy from Stranger Things. He had a very similar look. Oh, which guy from Stranger Things? The older brother. Yes, he was fun. Yeah, yeah, he has a very similar look. I will say, Kaz is hotter because the guy in Stranger Things actually looks like he has a legitimate heroin problem, whereas Kaz just looks like model heroin chic. Mm, Definitely Ben Barnes. Oh, I've loved Ben Barnes since he played Prince Caspian in the Narnia movies. So attractive. But yeah. The plot and setting. So it's a kind of a definitely a Russian fantasy setting. Yeah. So just to preface, this is based on a series of books, but neither of us read those nope. books. Yeah. We haven't read. <laughs> so I have an interesting. Th- so the books are by Leigh Bardugo, some uh, very popular YA novels. As I understand it, there's a Shadow and Bone trilogy, which is the fantasy books starring Alina and Mal, that sort of storyline. With General General Kirigan and stuff too. But the Kaz and the Crows storyline, heist or criminal underworld, that seems to be a different duology called Six of Crows. And they seem to have meshed them from the get-go here because those storylines actually in the setting occur concurrently. So I thought that was a really interesting choice if that is what they did. That seems really cool. They might have just taken characters from Six of Crows and not actually use the storyline from Six of Crows. I'm not sure if that's... Well, I have a feeling they probably didn't use the storyline from Six of Crows if you don't see those characters in the Shadow and Bones story because the heist that they're doing in the TV show is to steal 
exactly. Alina Starkov. Yeah. So like if if they don't cross over in any of those books, it wouldn't make sense if it's if it's the same story. Yeah. So I have a feeling they, you know, made some changes and meshed I, it together. But I had heard something similar. Yeah. So so we don't know. So don't kill us for not knowing exactly. But I if if something of this idea is part of it, I think that's very smart. Cause I, what I heard is that Shadow and Bone is not that that great. So bringing in Kaz and uh Jasper, Jasper. Jasper. I liked Jasper. Jasper. I like Jasper yeah. a lot. And Inej. Inej just had one of the more interesting storylines, although we might get into this, but a little bit fucked up from a certain point of well, view. And also I feel like they didn't dig deep enough in her. You know, like she had yeah. one of the more interesting backstories, but they didn't really like do yeah. anything with it. They just sort of hinted at no, it. No, it still needed to go places. Whereas Jasper was had Jasper. some of those iconic moments. Sorry, what? Jasper with an E. Jasper. Oh, that's what I said. And then, oh, I thought you corrected me to Jasper. No. Oh, because I asked Jesper or Jasper. Yeah, and I said and Jasper. I, I heard, yeah. Oh, okay. I heard <laughs> the opposite. That's funny. Um, you never listen to me. I, well, that's what I thought it was. I thought it was <laughs> Jesper, but I'm like, is it Jasper? But anyways, but he has some very cool moments. He's like a crack shot with a gun. But like when you actually think about it, other than that, there's not no, a storyline. There's so there's a moment in one of the episodes where he's he's doing that with a Grisha and like intentionally hitting him in the same spot so that it breaks through his bulletproof kafta, the jacket. And he says something like, Oh my god, you're a and Jesper cuts him off by shooting him again. So I think Jesper oh. is like a Grisha or something. He's something other than oh. like a regular human. But Jesper doesn't want anyone to know. Oh, that's cool. I did not catch that. I think. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's really Shadow cool. and Bones fans, tell me if I'm right. For TV shows with magic effects, this is some of the Solid. best. I think. Yes, honestly, I agree with they that. They look very good. They and they use it like they use it often enough that you don't feel like they're like they're hiding some kind of budget constraint. Mm -hmm. But they don't overuse it to feel like you're like, oh god. They clearly spent all their budget on this. <laughs> or it's too. Off, like that they would have to make it worse looking because they're using it so often. Yeah, I would say... They did a nice balance. Shockingly, The Witcher definitely suffered from that, in my opinion. Like the magic uh, yeah, in The bit. Witcher. They use it so frequently. And these are these are episodes that are like million dollar epi per episode. And The mm. Witcher looked like shit. <laughs> like there were things about it that looked okay. But for the most part, The Witcher special effects looked so fucking cheap for a show that cost a million dollars per episode. The sets were also really shitty. Yeah. And Game of Thrones was 10 million an episode. So 10 million an episode. Yeah. Seriously. Yeah. Is, by the last season yeah. or right from the get-go? Yeah, I, I think Witcher was more than a million an episode uh, too. But yeah, TV shows cost a lot of money. I know TV shows cost a lot of money, but 10 million an episode seems like incredibly yeah. ostentatious. I mean, it was it was the highest budget show at the time. Yeah, for sure. I know. But you have to remember, they were, they're, they're filming in like seven locations every single episode. Yeah, you know, it was they were doing crazy stuff. But I feel like, OK, by the last season of Game of Thrones, that makes sense to me. But right from the get go, there's no way it was 10 million an episode. That's no, that just probably not for sense. not from the beginning. I remember for season one in particular having some not so great looking moments. Well, season one also like, had like way less need for special effects. Like there were, there weren't dragons mm -hmm. really yet. Like there was yeah. barely dire wolves. So the whole first season, especially the first half of it, I do think feels sketchier, but anyways, shadow and bone. I really liked, I did find one special effect thing that did bother me a lot was how 
using light powers worked with dark powers. It didn't light it up in a way the way I expected it to. It no, always it looked like a, very weird. It was like a bubble of light underneath all the yeah. shadow where I would have liked it yeah. to like dispel the shadow or break yeah. or like cut through the shadow. You know what I mean? But I think it's also because it just looked weird to me. Yeah. She's I think it's also because she's supposed to be still learning how to control it and learning like how far she can push it. Whereas he is like, obviously as we find out incredibly seasoned with his abilities. Um, so he's, he has a greater sense of control. So I think, I think that's part of it, yeah. but the shadow power looked way cooler than the, the shadow power. power. Was the absolute best power yeah. in the entire So much show, cooler which looking. Which adds to Ben Barnes just being the coolest character. And he is, it's so hot. Not to spoil too much, but he is so evil. Yeah. And it's just like, you're like stuck loving this character and being like, but he is so evil. Like, yeah, it's like oh the exact God. opposite problem of John Walker and Falcon and the Winter Soldier, where he's mm. like, he's he's a bad guy, but he's like not evil to the level of like Ben Barnes' character in Shadow and Bones, but he's so much more hateable. It's just so much more hateable. <laughs> and then so there's, as with a lot of YA stuff, there's a lot of sexy times and a lot of love yeah. triangles and things like this. And yeah, the main one is awful and I don't like it. I think Mal is, it's not even about the childhood friend story or whatever. I just think his character is boring. Yeah. Alina's boring. And it just ruins any effect of having a love triangle type thing. And yet... That's the thing to look forward to for the next season, you know, sort of thing. And I'm like, oh, God. But there's other characters who are in relationships. There's like multiple gay couples or gay couplings, um, which was very cute and fun. I like that. You know, why is always fun for that stuff nowadays where they have lots of different things going on with the side characters that are like fun to watch. Mm-hmm. It's just unfortunate that their main characters are often abysmal. Yeah, it's, it's um, a very consistent feature of YA novels. You know, like the main characters are just always so fucking boring. And it's not even that they're awful, like they're terrible people, but that does happen frequently too. It's just that they're dull. Like they're the blandest character. And I'm supposed to be rooting for this person. Like I'm supposed to be excited to watch this person. And I could not give less of a fuck. I want to be a map maker. Fuck off. Oh, yeah, and that became totally irrelevant within 10 oh seconds. Oh, my God, I know. It's I hate like, when they do stuff like that. All she's doing is yelling about how, like, I don't want to be a Grisha. I want to be a map maker. And then as soon as she's like, I'm magic. Fuck maps. <laughs> yeah, and so this is something that a lot of people have talked about. But so one of the things they bring up right at the beginning is she is half Shu, yeah. which is the Chinese equivalent in this world. And they are Russians, basically. And so she's made fun of. And they say, like, real slang terms to make fun of uh, like to to bring her down about this literally after episode one this is never again mentioned or no one cares and it's like i thought this was like it they really played up to be one of the big premises of like her being a map maker too and it's like it's so weird how quickly they just switch over to whatever they wanted to do with the storyline yeah so it's just bizarre to me like don't play with that kind of thing because that's an important issue if you're not going to actually do it, I don't know. No, I get what you mean. Especially because like, you know, I mean, you get two episodes of these like weird pseudo racial slurs. And then yep. it's just like, she's the sun summoner and that's it. And you're like, okay. 
I guess we're over it. Well, it becomes so in this world, only some people, and it doesn't seem to be based on race. It can be anyone in the country have magical powers. And those are, those people are called Grisha. And you're tested when you're young, whether you have these powers or not. And then it used to be the case that Grisha were all persecuted and had a really tough time, but now they're used in the military. So now they're all like sort of collect together, trained, and they and they protect each other. And then one of the storylines that they're talking about in the show is that technology is getting better and better, like weapons. So they have to wear, for example, all Grisha get these gaftas, but any but these like these uh, overcoats, which are bulletproof, which is just one of the conceits of the show. No one knows what, how they got bulletproof overcoats, but they they have them. I assume it's magic. I like I just yeah. make the excuse that it's magic. And that's the only way that they could possibly keep up with things because their powers are strong, but guns are strong too, mm-hmm. you know? So it's like, I don't know. It's a, And so the, the fear is now the Grisha are in trouble again because they aren't as useful in war as they used to be. They used to be worth like 10 soldiers, but now because of guns and other means, they're not so powerful. Which honestly, I feel like is a little bit of bullshit, like... These people can like make ships move with their wind powers and heal Mm. wounds without having to go to a hospital. Like, I'm sorry, guns are cool, but this bitch is throwing (laughs) fire and this one is healing literal broken bones without a splint or a bandage. Like, there's just no competition. I don't fucking care how great your guns are. We have a human flamethrower. Yeah. Well, let's not even talk about the, the the General Kirigan's powers, which are like beyond powerful. Yeah, but he's the only one. He's it's only in his family yeah. line. Everyone else's is more normal. So but overall, I I like the show. I binged it. I really enjoyed it. But honestly, I am looking for more forward to like a Witcher season two. I, I find the characters or like where it could go more interesting, I guess. Where Shadow and Bone, the story is very fun, but it's like it's not that interesting. Yeah, I would agree with that. Although I will watch a season two for Ben Barnes. Oh, yeah. Like, like I, I really enjoyed it. So I'd love to keep watching. But I, I feel like a Sabrina is going to happen where it just gets goes worse and worse each oh, season. Oh, God. Sabrina got so bad so quickly. All right. Um, what else What else have you been watching? Well, as I very lightly mentioned, I watched The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, which you were also supposed mm-hmm. to watch but didn't finish. I, yeah, I watched half of it, so I have a general idea of what was going on, but honestly, I didn't enjoy it that much, so well, it is what it is. <laughs> I will say, I will say it did suffer a little from, like, COVID issues, because Falcon and the Winter Soldier was originally supposed to come out before WandaVision, which I also watched. Um, oh, it ended up, I didn't know that. It ended up getting pushed to after WandaVision, which I, I do think was the better call as far as, like, cadence of release. But part of the reason it got pushed was because there was this huge storyline, like there was a, a third plot line, basically, in Falcon and the Winter Soldier that delved into the relocation camps that Carly and the Flag Smashers are like rallying against to protect the people in the camps. Um, and the big issue was that there was a ton of illness and a huge like rampant, essentially epidemic or pandemic running through these relocation camps and they, they weren't receiving medicine. Um, No one was like treating these people, but because of the COVID pandemic, they decided to cut that plot line because it was just too close to reality. And they figured it would Mm. make people really uncomfortable. And I think you can feel it in a few particular episodes where there's just like a motivation missing 
for the main antagonist yeah. of the series, which is the Flag Smashers. That's I felt that. I was going to ask about that because I was actually, before you even mentioned this, I was going to ask him like, my one big thing is I like the Flag uh, Smashers, right? Uh, a lot, but they they seem to want to do something that isn't being explained here and really feels like it should. Yeah, so the big thing with the Flag Smashers is um, the blip happened, which is where Thanos yep. snapped 50% of the population of the universe disappeared. When that happened, everybody who was left kept living. Those jobs still existed, so people had to work them. So a lot of people that were in poverty situations suddenly became more affluent because they were able to take these jobs on and they were able to purchase houses. They moved into the houses and apartments that people were no longer occupying. There was less of a housing crisis because there weren't as many people, so there were more like open homes to move into. But when everybody came back... All of the governments across the world start working together to get these people who returned basically to slide right back into their life where they left off five years prior. So rather than everyone having to, you know, adjust collectively and these people needing to get new jobs, find new homes, they just moved all of the people who were left behind after the snap out of the homes and out of the jobs that they had taken up and put them into relocation camps. And everyone who was returned after the Avengers saved everyone in Endgame moved back into their old homes and took up their old jobs like they had never left. So now mm. you have these people who have been... That would be a very hard yeah. thing for society to deal with. That is strange that they just so smoothly are like, okay, we're just gonna... yeah. So you know? the government's just like, okay, I get that you basically replaced our entire workforce and kept the economy running, but get the fuck out of these homes. They're going back to the people who have been gone for five years um, and you're fucked. And I'm I, like, I don't even know how you would appropriately address that situation because these people feel like, yeah. like the people who returned feel like they never left. It feels like seconds for them. So they mm -hmm. shouldn't like, God, can you imagine you come back and somebody else is living in your home? But the people who were left behind who had to deal with the grief and the trauma of what happened and then move on and try and be productive and work and buy homes and do all of these things and just exist, now all of their property is gone. Everything they've worked for is being taken away and given back to people that disappeared. And they have to live in essentially a work camp and wait for the government to tell them where they can live and what job they can do. Um, so that's the main issue with the, I wish the show had, had dived more directly into that stuff. Cause that really yeah. is interesting to me. And I think it would have, but the main plot line that yeah. delved into that was the plot line with the lack of, um, medical and healthcare resources. And the fact that that led to a, a pandemic run like ravaging these relocation camps. And because we're in the middle of a pandemic, nobody wanted to have that conversation. A pandemic that's being handled so incredibly poorly and people are literally dying from lack of medical resources, especially, mm -hmm. you know, impoverished communities. So they're just like, well, we don't want to fucking do that. So we're just we're just not going to. So they just cut it out. Um, and I think that caused it to suffer. So I think the plot line around Sam Falcon, the new Captain America racism and police brutality and racial inequality. Super interesting. They did a really good job with that. The plot line around Bucky, Winter Soldier, 
and PTSD and his relapse into it and him trying to like make amends mm-hmm. and cope. Super interesting. They did a great job with that. The John Walker stuff, the egotism of like affluent white men combined with yeah. untreated PTSD, super interesting. But the redemption arc they gave him was so lackluster by the end of the season. And I think- Oh, see, I didn't get that far. It's Oof. very lackluster. It's it's not a full redemption arc because he becomes a new character. He becomes a US agent. And there's still a lot of questionable shit around that. Mm-hmm. But he gets a minor redemption arc. There's sort of a an uneasy- workman kind of thing going on between him Bucky and Sam but I think it was so lackluster because I have a feeling it related more to that flag smasher plot line Mm. that got cut so like you can tell especially in the last episode that there were pieces missing um, and you could really feel that and it was very awkward overall I really enjoyed it I really loved the characters I thought Sam and Bucky were great John Walker, you love to hate him. So that was fun. Could it have been better? Probably. I think Marvel is is having a hard time with the TV show format. That would be my overall opinion. Because I feel like WandaVision oh, okay. had a similar problem. Where really, okay. in my mind, what Marvel is doing is still using a, a film kind of format. But just chopping up these extra long movies into one hour episodes rather than using a like a true television format where you have a structure for each episode so that you have a bit of action, you have a bit of drama. And what you ended up having in Falcon and the Winter Soldier and what makes me think that this is just a really long movie that they chopped up into one hour episodes is that there'll be an episode that's just like no plot movement. And like cute character moments. And it's super bland and slow. And then the next episode is like eight fight scenes in a row. And you're like, what are you fucking doing? Parse this shit out a little bit, you know? Uh, Like I shouldn't be watching a 50-minute episode of like dialogue and then a 50-minute episode where barely anybody speaks and they're just throwing punches. It doesn't make any sense. And Mm. I feel like WandaVision had a similar problem. I really found that, yeah, by the end of WandaVision, that was one of my big disappointments was the change in feeling. Because I do think at the beginning, you do get more of an episodic structure because they sort of Mm. jam it in there with the uh, sitcom But here's the thing. There's no plot movement. In those first three episodes, there's absolutely no plot movement. It's just, look how kitschy we are. It's I Love Lucy and now it's Bewitched. And you're like, yeah, this is cool but I don't really understand what you're like the context you're not doing anything Mm. here there's no plot structure um it's just like here's some cute shit that's happening and I feel like a lot of the fans loved WandaVision but were confused by those first three episodes and then you get to episode four and it's like bam 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 the plot's happening you're like I don't yeah I don't uh, the pacing doesn't make sense it's like you have this insanely long prologue in WandaVision for three three hours worth of prologue, basically. And then you have like two hours worth of movie and then an epilogue. And you're like, this is really long and arduous. And Falcon and the Winter Soldier, mm. even though it was only six episodes, so it was more condensed, did the same kind of thing where you have an episode that has no, like it's so slow. And then you have an episode that's so much content packed into it and so many like villains and fight scenes. You're like the pacing and structure of these two episodes don't work together. 
And I think that's why the Netflix Marvel shows like Daredevil and um, Punisher worked so well, because while Netflix doesn't do great TV shows, they do understand television format and pacing. And I think Disney and Marvel is still trying to figure out how to do the movies like the how to translate their film characters into a television formula that functions and makes sense to like an episodic watcher. I think that's especially true of Falcon and Winter Soldier for me. I did kind of just feel like I was watching like an actual movie and I'm I'm honestly not the biggest fan of Marvel movies in general. Like I watch them all because everyone watches them and talks about them. Of course. But like I, uh, yeah, they're just, they're neutral to me. I'm like, they're always enjoyable or almost always enjoyable, but they never really reach the heights because a lot of the stuff is very tame but I also don't like really fall in love with parts of it. So, but anyways, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I dive too deep into that. I like what they're trying to do. I like that they're trying to make this expansive universe that much more engaging by having right. television shows. Oh, absolutely, that it's a good choice. Connect to the films. Yeah, it makes so much sense, especially in a pandemic world where streaming is so much more accessible for the average fan. It's it's smart. It's just really really smart to have that interconnectedness. Um, and I like the fact that, you know, Falcon and the Winter Soldier was there to tee up the new Falcon uh, or the new Captain America movie, Captain America 4, which will star, mm-hmm. you know, Falcon Sam Wilson as Captain America, which is amazing. Anthony Mackie. I like that the new Loki TV show is directly going to be correlated to uh, Doctor Strange Multiverse of Madness. I think it's a really good decision mm-hmm. on their part. And I think it's a great way for them to introduce the next wave of the Avengers rather than making it very like abrupt of a transition. It eases people into it because we're going to have, you know, the female Hawkeye character. We're going to have She-Hulk. We're going to have, you know, Anthony Mackie as Captain America. Like there's a lot of change there. And I think this makes it Mm -hmm. a lot more engaging, interesting, gives a lot of explanation on background without having to do all these origin story movies all over again. I just don't think they have the television format down yet. They don't understand that structure and that's making it a struggle, which is a bummer because I would love to see them continue to do these TV shows because I think there's a lot of really interesting things from the comics that they don't explore in the movies that they have the opportunity to explore in a television format. It's funny to me too, because a lot of my friends like The Mandalorian, another Disney Plus show and the Disney brand that's happening here. It's very wide appeal and each one is high quality. And of course, Netflix also tries to put a lot of high quality shows, but they're also willing to do a much bigger spread. Like they have stuff that's much more dedicated for, let's say, like older women, older men, just young people, just kids, right? They they really spread it out everywhere. And that approach, it gets you excited for different types of things mm-hmm. when you get announcements on Netflix. Whereas I almost feel like every big name Disney Plus thing I've heard about, it's like it's all the same family-friendly, like, action-oriented thing. Um, And so it's just like, yeah, like, it appeals to everyone. It seems pretty solidly done. But it's also just kind of a Marvel movie shrunk to a TV show. Yeah. Yeah. I think once they get that format down a little bit better, you know, when when they start, if they start understanding a television formula a little better, I think those shows will improve. But, I mean, you're still going to run into the same family-friendly issue, right? Like, it's 
it's never gonna yeah. like especially with the That's marvel the properties like it's it's never gonna get to that like really ostentatious or r-rated or really boundary pushing mm -hmm. kind of content i will say disney plus while i'm not a huge fan of you know the entertainment monopoly that disney has created now that they have fox they do have their like star category on Disney Plus, which allows them to have R-rated movies and TVMA television mm. shows. Um, so I do think there's possibility in the future for that kind of content, but it's just never going to be under the Marvel properties, um, in my opinion. Like even the Blade movie, which is scheduled for Phase Five of uh, the Marvel Universe or Marvel Cinematic Universe, is going to be PG-13. Whereas mm. Bl and Blade is always yeah. known to be like boundary pushing and more of a mature yeah. audience and the original blade films other than the third one which we do not talk about were all r-rated movies mm -hmm. um right. and they should be like that's that's who blade is he's a mature character he should be an r-rated film and that's just that's not gonna happen here um and it's yeah. the same reason why deadpool really hasn't even though it, you know fox has been absorbed into disney deadpool hasn't been absorbed into the mcu in the same way because those are r-rated films that fox put out and disney's just not mm -hmm. they're just not going to do that uh no yeah speaking of the comparison to netflix though i did remember i did finish jenny and georgia which we had talked oh, about finally. a while back uh yeah i finished it right after we had talked about it but this was a while ago now um and Another show that I like Shadow and Bone, like I quite enjoyed. I'm not sure I have that much to say about it, though. It's a cool premise that I've never seen quite done before. But otherwise, it's kind of a teen drama mixed with a desperate housewives thriller kind of mm -hmm. um, thing. There's sort of two layers of it. Like there's the teen drama with um, Ginny and her dealing with relationship troubles and her her mother and her father and who are they who is she where does she fit in because her mom's white and her dad's black and they they're not together anymore but they still have something of a relationship so there's you know there's things and she's dealing with her own like she likes the bad boy but maybe the good guy who's also just a good guy like uh, like actually their relationship is good and she believes in it. it's not as though she, she thinks the relationship is terrible or fake no he's just how boring. do you choose between them and so, yeah, it's it's really fun. I enjoy the teen aspects and I enjoy the thriller aspects of Georgia's storyline. And she is a force of nature and has like a little bit of that fun psychopathic Rosamund Pike characteristics, but also this, uh, this, this Southern Belle crazy charm. It kind um, of gives me, it gives me um, Gilmore Girls meets Good Girls. Right. You know, the Christina Hendricks. I haven't seen Good Girls, oh, but yeah, Gilmore girls, girls, I definitely see the, You'll like the good vibes. Girls. Good Girls struck me as a little too corny for my taste it's, and comedic, but... It is very, it's very comedy, but it's a good comfort show. And there mm. is a very, very attractive man in it. <laughs> Not Matthew Lillard, although I do love him. Aw. Love Matthew Lillard. Our favorite. He'll forever be my shaggy. Uh, <laughs> but... Yeah, that was, I finished that a while back now and I don't have too much else to say about it. But um, did you talk about it on the show before too? You must yeah, have. Yeah, I did. Because I, yeah. I think I recommended it to yeah. you while we were recording. Yeah, on the show. Yeah. But Netflix, it's like, yeah, that one still isn't very experimental either. But there is a sense in which 
yeah, I, I just feel like I'm never going to get excited about Disney Plus shows. Like in the same, like, I mean, mo- most Netflix shows are not that great and they're also boring, but there's always this chance. Like there's, I feel like there's always these chances of breakthroughs or like really interesting aspects of their shows. And that's what I look forward to. Yeah, I definitely think Netflix is willing to take more chances, but I think the algorithm that Netflix uses to determine the sec- uh, the success of their shows means that they're more likely to cancel any of the chances yes. that they take. You know, when they do something that's genre-bending or weird, yes. they always cancel it, even if it is successful on the platform by standard metrics. Yep, Sense8 and, yeah. Yeah, and another thing that people talk about with that is because they're much more interested in hooking in new subscribers. Mm-hmm. So it's like, even if a show is becoming successful, they're like, we if we're paying the same amount of money for a new show that could get in, let's say, woman over 60 plus, and we don't, they don't have a, a new show like that coming out, versus something which people, yes, season two, they're like, I don't know, I I can see the, the metrics going up with this new flashy option. Um, but it's funny because it's like, having a lot of solid, reliable, like, many season shows. I mean, which they do. They do carry on many season shows, but it's just their cancellation number is a little high. Yeah, because I feel like they're, like you said, they're they're more focused on bringing in new subscribers than they are on churn and burn of current subscribers. And I think that's going to catch up to them. Like, I understand, you know, um, Prime and Hulu and Disney Plus are competing in the same space as Netflix and they're catching up in subscribers. Like people are ditching Netflix to go over to these other platforms. I totally get that. So they want to try and draw in new users. But in large part, their most consistent users are the ones who are jumping ship and going to other platforms because Netflix is canceling all of the shows or Mm. not renewing contracts with other shows that people are staying on the platform to watch originally. So I think I think eventually, you know, it is going to bite them in the ass that they're only focused on bringing in new subscribers and not focused on retaining subscriptions. Yeah. But I will say, like, they've they've brought out some good content recently. Um, I just watched that new animated movie that they did, The Mitchells versus The Machines. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was so I good. saw it. I, it looked a little too family young for me. So how did you feel about it? I mean, it definitely is, you know, like it's like a DreamWorks or, or a Disney you know, family animated movie, but it's, mm. it's so fun. The animation style, I will say mm. is it gives more of um, a gravity falls feel. And, and that's in large part, I think, because um, some of the gravity, gravity falls people are oh. involved in it. Um, oh, that's cool. The producers who worked on it are the um, Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse producers. Okay. And I think the writers are from Gravity Falls. So you've already got like a really mm-hmm. great creative base right there. For sure. But the animation style is so fresh and interesting, you know, like it does have a bit of a look of the Steven Universe Gravity Falls kind of look of animation, but it's so much more dynamic. It's all really vibrant, aggressive, co- like intense colors, lots of oranges, yellows, reds, pinks. Um, and they do a lot of meme culture things, you know, like you'll have little cutaways oh, okay. where they add in video clips of viral, like little viral vines oh and um, like actual memes well, very on the screen. And it feels very millennial meets Gen Z. It's very, very fresh. It's really targeted towards like the 15 to 30 year olds. Like you can tell it's very niche to 
the internet user base and not necessarily, mm-hmm. even though it's a family friendly movie, it's not necessarily for like seven year olds, you know, like it's, it's made for teens, 20 somethings. And it's kind of cool. You know, it feels, mm-hmm. it feels very much like it was created by people who were like really big on Tumblr and really into vine and like, or vines and stuff. You know what I mean? Um, so it's it's very fun in that way. It's really engaging in the same way that like I want to check this out. This is sounds very this you're really selling it cuz you don't see that kind of thing no. in most stuff. That's very unique. You know, I find with animation these days like the big thing is about making it as 3D and like CGI looking and like full of depth and full of like like realism and I think Into the Spider-Verse mm. had a lot of that and it's cool. It is really really cool what animators are doing right now. Same with Pixar. Where like even though it is animated, it has a lot of depth to it. It has a lot of physicality to it. So it feels realistic even though it's animated. Whereas this went in a very different direction. You know, it's not flat like old school Disney cartoons, but it's not trying to do that hardcore CG thing. They went in a completely different and like really new, fresh animation style that was super cool. Mm-hmm. And like the family is just, it's great. The family gives me um, Griswold's in National Lampoon Vacation vibes mm-hmm. um, without being as as obnoxious, but it's the same kind of like dysfunctional, but they love each other kind of family. There's no animosity. There's no abuse. It's just, it's just genuine like teen issues and growing pains in a family where like the dad doesn't totally get the daughter anymore because she's going and doing her own thing and the daughter feels like her dad doesn't love her enough because they don't have enough in common anymore and they're trying to find middle ground and it happens to be during a machine uprising that they learn to love each other again and Mm -hmm. that they've always been there for each other and it's just really cute and fun and they have this messed up stupid pug family dog and like oh of course oh okay i see where you love it now i love the pug i do everything is doomed now yeah i love the pug the rest of the review out the window but the movie is really really fun and like i don't know it feels very absolutely it feels very modern you have like this dad that's you know very set in his ways um you know, he wants the standard daddy-daughter relationship. His daughter is awkward and hyper-artistic and can't relate to her, like, manly man-father anymore and is just trying to find mm. her own people. And her mom is, like, super kooky and weird. It's kind of giving me, how you describe it, kind of giving me incredible vibes, too. Just, like, really cool family dynamic. Although yeah. this, these ones, I don't assume, don't have powers. They're just dealing with a crisis, yeah. but not... Yeah. yeah, they don't have powers. They're just dealing with a crisis. Um, the daughter is very meme culture, like very heavy into meme culture. Mm. The son is like super, super painfully awkward and really into dinosaurs, which Ooh. is just precious. Um, and they're like besties. It's just it's sweet and it's way funnier than it has any right to be. Olivia Coleman does the voice of this like AI, like a uh, phone oh. virtual assistant. Um, okay yeah yeah and like Maya Rudolph is the mom like it's just it's a great cast it's really dynamic and like really interesting animation it's it's very cool it's one of the coolest animated movies I've seen in a really long time 
Nice. Highly recommend. Just just for the animation and meme style. Yeah, I might try to get this uh, with my family. Watch it with them. It seems like a good. I feel like they'd really like family it. Night one. It's yeah. it's very. I mean, it's a machine uprising, right? So it's just it's Terminator, but family friendly. But it's <laughs> really funny. Yeah, I really don't have much else to say because what I actually I'll just admit it's like I actually watch like three seasons of The Circle, the reality show, which I will oh no comment. I really enjoyed it, but no comment. You know, sometimes that's just where we end up. But I did. I don't know if I mentioned this last episode, but I did also finish one you've talked about before, and I don't have that much to say about. I just want to say that I also really loved it, which was The Lodge. Mm. Um, yeah. Which was very cool, very good indie horror psychological thing. Just for that type of movie, just great. Completely agreed with you. What I think you had said, like you loved it. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. It's from the people who did Good Night Mommy, which is a husband yeah. and wife team, I think. Also amazing. Good Night Mommy is probably better, has more yes. interesting things going on, but Lodge is also great. I would say Good Night Mommy is better. Um, I'll say, like, the. The more I think on it, because it's it's been a while now since I've seen it, I still love The Lodge, but I, I will say, like, it's not a perfect movie. If you don't like it, no. like, I'm not going to sit here like some pretentious asshole and be like, you just didn't get it. Like, there's definitely some pretty big plot holes in that movie. Um, yeah. But I just, I loved the ending of it, and I loved what it was yep. trying to do so much, and the yes. tension that it did create, that even though I recognize it it has problems. It has plot holes. I, I can get past it because of what it was attempting and how close it got and how great that ending was. Like, I haven't seen an ending that effective and that bleak since The Mist with mm -hmm. Thomas Jane, which is also right. an incredibly imperfect movie. But that ending is fucking spectacular. Yeah, it's an interesting. That wasn't my feeling with it. I actually really enjoyed the middle plot points. Too, I, I found the middle of the movie interesting to me because there's a tension between different options of how things could be going that I found very interesting. And the revelations of the main characters, her background and like how she was taking what's happening and these this sort of religious upbringing and like how it's affecting her really worked in well, mm -hmm. in my view. And the atmosphere was really working. And when she's going in the tundra too and the dreamscape stuff was was great yeah it was beautifully shot so so i enjoyed that stuff, but uh, but uh my brother when he watched with me he said like the ending is what saved it for him like yeah. he really didn't like the movie until the ending the ending is amazing the opening is amazing with alicia silverstone i think that opening is so intense and so effective in the same way that like midsummer right. ari aster's opening to midsummer is just so fucking effective i get where you're coming from in the middle but i don't think they delve deep enough into the religious trauma stuff if they're going to use that as a That's main true. motivating plot point. I wish there was, was more. very yeah. glossed over. But overall, it's a great movie. Like, I do really like it. Riley Keough, probably one of her better yeah, It gives me very Ari Aster vibes, actually. 100%. Like, especially the family dynamics. Um, but yeah. And then we saw, or we talked about the trailer for The Green Knight. Mm. So that is also I very exciting. I love Dev Patel. He's so gorgeous. Yes. <gasps> he looks great in it. Looks so good. Um, the, the world, dark fantasy weirdness, like a different vibe. I have not quite seen this vibe done before. Like it's almost as if like, you know, the Maleficent forever, but done for more adult audience. I will say it does give very witch vibes. You know, the witch, like it has similar see, vibes, I see, I but it's I still a haven't fantasy. seen it. You haven't seen the witch? Yeah. 
I know. We've talked oh, about it many times. But God, it's fine. I mean, everybody loves it. Yeah. You know, everybody who loves pretentious atmospheric horror movies is like, The Witch is the best thing that's come out in a decade. It's fine. <laughs> Anya Taylor-Joy is spectacular in it, but the movie's only okay. But it does have a very similar atmosphere. It's just fantasy. It's it's just the witch, but more fantasy. Um, but I think mm-hmm. I think it'll be really cool. I think it has a lot of potential. I have also read The Green Knight like forty seven times because of my fucking English oh, major, yeah, yeah. See, I, I my stupid yeah. English degree. But so. so that'll be an interesting connection. Yeah, I'm trying not to let that bias me too too much. Uh, not in a like. <laughs> Oh, I'm a scholar on the Green Knight. More in a, I fucking hate epic poetry that's in like yeah. old English and Middle English. It's annoying, and I hate reading it. Yeah. So we'll see how much I can get through this. But I love Dev Patel, so I'm definitely going to give it a watch. Yeah. So that's about it for me. Did you have? Well, are you going to watch Things Heard and Seen? Uh, I don't. I don't, I didn't even know about it until you had mentioned it. So yeah, go for it. It's a new movie on Netflix. It's a horror movie on Netflix. So I don't know if you want to watch it. I mean, I don't have a ton to say about it. It's um, it's fine. You know, it's it's <sighs> it's it's not as good as, but I think it's trying to do the same thing that they did that Netflix did with um. I'm thinking of ending things. Okay. Where it's you know. The more I think about that movie, the more I like it. Though I do, that movie, I do really is like. I do really like. I'm thinking of ending things, and I think they did as. I think they did it as well as, you know, can be expected for a movie that is, you know, so kind of ethereal and and like theoretical, like conceptual of a book. Mm-hmm. I think they did as good of a job as they could have. But I think they were trying to do the same thing with things heard and seen, trying to make it very conceptual and atmospheric. And I was along for the ride. Like I was very into it for the first I'd say half to two thirds. I was like, yeah, this is great. It's there were some like jumpy parts like they where it didn't it didn't flow great. But overall, I really enjoyed it. It's very white waspy culture, but it's definitely about an abusive marriage, Mm. you know, and like a husband's expectations of his wife in the 70s, the wife giving up her career to support the husband, all of these types of things. And it was interesting, you know, they moved to this small town, to this house um, that turns out to be a house where a wife was murdered by her husband. um, And that's why they got such a good deal on it. And then it turns out that the original owners, the wife was also murdered by the husband. So it just ends up being this house that only ever seems to belong to women in abusive marriages like that's the through line oh. of this house that they're okay. living in. And you start wondering, is this the house or is this the men being attracted to the atmosphere that this house creates um, mm. or, or what it exactly it is? Who's being haunted here? Is it just amplifying the problems within the relationships of the people who live there? So those are really interesting concepts that it's trying to do. And I think it's really cool. I, I do think Amanda Seyfried was like passably good in this. I don't think she's a great actress, but I think she did a good job in it. But overall, like the movie takes this like really aggressive left turn in like the third act And by the time you get to the ending, it's so theoretical and conceptual in comparison to Mm. like a relatively well-structured plot uh, in like the first two thirds that it just doesn't work. You know what I mean? Like you, you can't have 
something that's easy. The expectations weren't built up correctly. Yeah, it's it's so easy to follow. Like it's it's very easy to understand this sort of pseudo paranormal haunting movie about an abusive about abusive marriages, and then you get to the end where he basically like sails into a painting and you're just like well what the fuck is this and they they use a lot of like artist and painting imagery throughout the movie so you're like oh okay like i get it it's supposed to look like the painting and the painting is about like a soul crossing into hell or whatever so you're like okay cool i totally get it but then it literally becomes the painting and he just actually sails into what is a literal painting and he becomes it and you're like I don't really understand what you're trying to say with that Mm. you know it's like abusive marriages but then the afterlife and then hell and then you know souls crossing over the river Styx, and it was just they they did too many things narrow the field you know if you're going to do something so basic and and paint by numbers in your first two-thirds narrow your field don't try and do like everything in the last 30 minutes it doesn't work (laughs) yeah so well yeah i i I don't know if i'll pick up that one then but good to know it's still i mean it's still pretty good and there's um there's a relatively attractive dude in it that amanda seyfried has an affair Mm. with he looks like a young taylor kitsch um you know like friday night friday night lights era taylor kitsch very handsome. I just had a big um, conversation with a, with a group of friends of mine, like on a group chat about, it's actually about the Castlevania show on. And I said that like, it has very good action scenes and all this stuff. And I was like, they're all loving the action scenes, loving the characters and stuff. And I'm just like, honestly, I kept watching it because there's a lot of bisexual energy, like chaotic bisexual energy. <laughs> I loved it. And I'm like, look, that can keep me on a show. And so when you're talking about all these shows and you're like, my big selling point is that there's a hot guy. I'm like, you know what? Yeah. I get it. Yeah. Um, I sometimes like, that's all you need. Look, men have been objectifying women in television and movies for decades. I'm allowed <laughs> to get a little gross about hot men in movies. Especially when it's not like a male power fantasy every time there's a hot dude. Like, you know, I don't need him to have an eight pack and be like super aggro. I just need some like, you know, enemies right. to lovers action. I'm there. I'm good. Brad Pitt and Fight Club or nothing. Ugh. Gag. So, shall we move on to the movie, The Star Attraction? Uh, Yeah, unless you want to hear me talk about Bill Paxton and Helen Hunt and Twister, I think we're good to move on. Oh, yeah, you're saying that. Oh, yeah. We're we're, we're already a little crunched for time. But. I don't have any... I mean, Twister's been out... For a long time. I don't have anything very exciting to say about it other than it was, okay, yeah, you know, yeah. written by the same guy who wrote Jurassic Park, the book, which is cool. Right. But people do say, I, I like this little point about Twister, that Twister was huge mm-hmm. when it came out. And it's like, it's both forgotten and not forgotten. Like everyone knows it, but it like really didn't take over the culture in the way other giant movies have. And so it's so interesting because it's like everyone knows it, like especially our age or whatever or, or older. But... Does anyone say it's their favorite? It kind of reminds me of Avatar today too. Like the James Cameron movie is where it's like everyone knows it, but it's like, it's a little weird when people are like, this is my favorite. It's like, it just doesn't have enough cultural flavor or something. Like it just Avatar doesn't have an actual story. It's just yeah. dances with wolves with blue people. Like it's, it's not even a real movie. <laughs> but it was the highest grossing film. Yeah, I or, know. Sometimes it is. 
Endgame is the only is the competitor. I know, but it's just for the visuals. It's not because it has an interesting plot. No, I'm just yeah, I'm just saying Twister was sort of that for its era. Yeah, but I mean, I think you can say the same thing about any of the disaster movies that came out in the 90s and early 2000s. Mm. Like people loved um, The Day After Tomorrow, but nobody remembers it. People loved Deep Impact and Armageddon and Volcano, but nobody remembers what any of those fucking movies were about outside of the title. Most people don't even remember who was in them. I wonder how we feel about disaster movies now. Like if we're like... My mom is obsessed. Really? My mom loves disaster movies. She loves them. I just wonder, I just wonder like after COVID, if people are more like, we need chill. Like, I don't know if I can deal with. So like, I don't, I don't want there to be an apocalypse. And I also don't think I do well in an apocalypse. Mm -hmm. But we've been in lockdown for so long in Ontario that I kind of just want to spice things up. Like, give me some zombies, you know, Mm -hmm. like. Let's have giant bug monsters like in Love and Monsters. You know, just give me something new. An excuse to leave the apartment. I don't have zombies or monsters, but I do have psychopaths. Segway to. Um, when, when you say segue to, it ruins the segue. Excuse me. Beautiful. Uh, we watched Rules of Attraction. From 2002. Mm-hmm. Starring Jessica Biel. James Vanderbeek, whom I love, even though he plays horrible characters every time, and Ian Somerlander. And I wrote down Eric Sismanda, who I don't know who he plays. <laughs> That's because these, this entire movie, see, okay, Joseph does this. When we watch a movie, I name all the actors, and then he writes them down so that he can say them when we segue into the movie. Oh, this was some rando at the beginning, wasn't it? Yes. Oh, it's the video guy. <gasps> he's so cute, though. <laughs> he he does this. He irrelevant. writes them down, and then he gets to say all of the names of the actors in the movie. Yeah. Like, he actually knows who any of these fucking people I are. I got the three other ones. Um, but then I wrote down the main actress name wrong. So you'll have to uh, do that one. Uh, so, first of all, Eric Sismanda is a bit character. But he is from CSI. He plays Greg yes, in CSI. Right. So that's that's why I recognized him. The main actress in it, other than Jessica Biel, is Shannon Sossaman. And she was in um, A Knight's Tale. She was the main character mm. in A Knight's Tale uh, across from Heath Ledger. And she was also in the Sleepy Hollow television show, which I watched recently, which is not that good. Um, and then you've got a bit role from Kate Bosworth of Blue Crush fame, who also dated Orlando Bloom for a while. Fun. And then a bunch, you know, a bunch of other character actors. Yeah, Rules of Attraction is a movie I think we've both seen. We had both seen for sure mm-hmm. early in our lives. And it's part of this whole grouping of movies that we talk about quite often of suburban angst mixed with intense sexual stuff or yeah, basically that. Often gay repression too, which will become a big topic as we go on. But uh, yeah, I really, I really liked it. I do like way too many of these movies. Like if I had to like make a list of like best movies to send into space or whatever, I'd have way too many of this type of movie. So it's like, I'd really need to like <laughs> be a little more careful with my love of this type of movie. But um, yeah, it's, you know, I always love a good gay sexual energy repressed with very sad teens everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's 
like classic late nineties, early two thousands nihilism vibes. Heather's Donnie Darko. Yeah. Well, Heather's was eighties. Right. But it's it's based on a novel written by the same man who wrote American Psycho. Um, the rules of attraction exists in the same universe, main character in American Psycho. Which is so cool when you told me about that. (laughs) Main character in American Psycho is Patrick Bateman. And the main character in the rules of attraction is Sean Bateman. Patrick is Sean's, I think, uncle or older brother. I can't remember which. Um, But they're related. They're directly Mm -hmm. related. And you hear him talking about Patrick throughout this movie. Um, So like when Paul calls him on the payphone in the dorm room and he says, who is this? Is this Patrick? That's he's talking about Patrick Bateman. Oh my God. I didn't catch that. That's so yeah. cool. I was like, who is this Patrick? He's not a character. Yeah. Yeah. So that's who Patrick is. You hear Patrick come up like frequently. Um, so Vanderbeek plays Sean Bateman um, and you hear him talk about or mentions like offside or be like, Oh, I was in the city visiting, you know, my relative Patrick or whatever. He's talking about Patrick Bateman from American Psycho. Um, and they clearly both have like a lot of issues with mental instability and sexuality and misogyny and stuff. So it's, it's there's definitely a lot of relationship between those two characters. One of the nastiest obsessions he has is this idea of there's multiple characters who are interested in just like having sex with women. Like you, you meet this more later in the movie, but you have this idea of this character Victor who seems to be like he might be coming in as a good character but he turns out he's one of the most misogynistic characters who comes in but it's funny because even when you compare him to Sean who is has been misogynistic or like not a great person throughout the whole movie it's actually in a way Sean is almost reflected as worth because worse because his his way of being misogynistic or things is like totally fetishizing and totally narcissistic in this very particular way you realize how much he hasn't noticed uh, noticed about the destruction he's laid behind him and just he's just obsessed with his weird unrequited loves or this idea of innocence in women um, that he wants to take hold of he gives me you know the less family friendly version of Scott Pilgrim. You know, like he's very oh, obsessed with that like manic pixie dream girl kind of vibe. Right. And he loves the idea of somebody being obsessed with him more than he actually cares about that person. So he's getting all of these yeah. letters in his dorm room mailbox, like these like anonymous love letters, and he decides that they're coming from this character, Lauren, played by Shannon Sossaman, with zero evidence. He has a five-second interaction with her, and she's kind of, like, quirky and weird and very, like, manic pixie-ish. So he decides it has to be her. And then he builds this entire fantasy around her about what she is like, what she'd be like in bed, what she smells like, how she kisses, how much she's in love with him, how much he loves, how much she's in love with him. And none of these things are true except for the fact that she has a relatively minor crush on him. And then after all of that buildup that he creates in his mind, he still sleeps with her her roommate and then gets angry with her for being upset about it. Yeah. And then on the to add to this whole picture, on the periphery of this 
is this weird side storyline that's happening of a of a weird unrequited love triangle of obsession and missed connections sort of thing with Ian Somerhalder's character, Paul, who is clearly a gay guy. And this is an interesting we'll connect to. So the author of the book, who also wrote American Psycho, was a repressed gay man who came out in 2012, way after his books, way after these movies came out. Now, it might have been a sort of open secret type thing. We don't know for sure, but, you know, it's interesting that he only openly came out later because in this movie in particular, it's so obvious this storyline is coming from this character's perspective more than anyone else's. And you can see psychopathy can in a way connect with repression in this, like, clear way. We can kind of see that he might have two sides to him. Does he have to be a guy like James Vanderbeek's character who just doesn't think about women as people or objectifies them or has this just narcissistic imagery or this also narcissistic, but this obsession of unrequited love and how am I to exist in this world? Basically, Paul, Ian's character, only interacts with other straight men and like falls in love with them or becomes obsessed with them. And that's his sort of storyline on the side. It's very bizarre. There's, and there's multiple of them, not just Sean is he obsessed with, but you see in the middle of the movie, his obsession with some kind of childhood friend or something that he's had some kind of experience with because they say, let's go to a, into a shower together and do these things. And you can definitely imagine this kind of lifestyle for many uh, gay men being a necessity or being a thing, but how repressive it is to have to exist in this sort of sidelined way at all times, but not feeling like there's other opportunities out there. Yeah, the um, the author of both books is, um, I just had his name. Brett Easton Ellis? Yeah, Brett Easton Ellis is the author of both American Psycho and The Rules of Attraction um, and many other books. But both of these books deal with the, and movies, deal with the concept of like, heteronormativity, misogyny, and, um, like, homosexual repression specifically. And I think, you know, obviously that's a reflection of the author and also the time period that they're set in, right? Like, even though I I think Rules of Attraction did kind of move things up a little bit, it's supposed to be set more in, like, the 90s. American Psycho is, like, pretty – late 80s for sure. 90s vibes for sure and even this is like at best mid 90s vibes because everybody's using pay phones nobody's mm-hmm. really got beepers or anything there's no real cell phones yet in this um there's hardly any computers yeah the fashion doesn't feel 2000s yet no so time period wise like you're coming just out of the aids crisis it makes sense to be having these conversations about sexuality, heteronormativity. Um, And then you're also deep in the midst of like this white wasp culture, you know, like the wealthy Mm -hmm. Anglo-Saxon Protestant culture of the Northeast. Both of these movies are steeped in it. And the author is a relatively wealthy white man from the Northeast. So it makes, Mm -hmm. makes sense that this is like his target audience that he's talking about. But I would imagine that environment it, it would be conflicting to be anything but a straight person. There'd be so much homophobia, so much fear mongering. Um, and like, but like weirdly steeped in privilege. So it's like, 
Yeah. I, I can imagine being a teenager, a 20 year old in that kind of an environment that would be so strict, but because you're relatively affluent, you would also have like boundless opportunity. And that's so confusing, you know? Mm-hmm. So you see these university students, these college students going off the fucking rails. Like they're just doing oh, yeah. drugs play a huge role in this too. Yeah. They're all alcoholics. They're all doing blow. They're all having sex with everyone. Everybody's getting STDs. Um, And the only like and then you have people who are dealing drugs because they're not as affluent and they're trying to keep up. Um, So it's it's culturally really confusing. I feel like watching that when I was a teenager, it definitely made me think college was going to be way more intense than it was. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. And comparing it to to a very similar sort of path. And, and, you know, many times I've claimed my favorite movie, controversial or not, is Fight Club, writ, the book written by Chuck Palahniuk, who has actually said that he likes the movie better than his book, which I haven't read. Uh, but he's written many other books too. And he has a very similar story as the author uh, for this, where he was a repressed gay man and same waspy culture. Um, and you look at a movie like Fight Club and you have a kind of, not really a gay character, but like a uh, a regular student who's but he's, who's looking up to this hyper alpha male, hyper straight guy. It's a male power fantasy. Yeah, think, but for gay men, there's an interesting dynamic when it comes to that because, and I don't know how much is this coming from the book and how much of this was just the movie direction, but it's like Brad Pitt really plays the line nicely of being a very sexually attractive person and hyper macho guys will just love him want to be him type thing which aren't always connected like often you can get like romantic leads who are very very beautiful but not idealized by straight men i do agree that those things aren't necessarily interconnected but when i say male power fantasy like the Mm -hmm. standard male power fantasy is men want to be him women want to fuck him that's right. the standard male power fantasy. So they're like super jacked, super alpha male, real aggro, like leader of the pack. All the dudes fall in line behind him, but women throw themselves at him. Like yeah. he has the pick of the litter. And that's like a standard male power fantasy. And that's exactly what Tyler Durden embodies. And that's yeah. exactly what Patrick Bateman in American Psycho is trying to be. Yeah. But his obsession with becoming the like Wall Street version of that male power fantasy is really centered around um, Jared Leto's character, Paul. And he, it basically turns into this weird psychosexual like mental gymnastics love affair that he has with this dude where he Mm -hmm. both wants to embody everything that he is, hates everything about the guy, but is like fucking in love with him. And then if you bring in Sean Bateman from this movie, he's, it's funny because three different characters are completely obsessed with him or well, maybe not um, Lauren, but she has some care for him. And, and so there's this, very strange like he doesn't care about their love in a certain way but also needs it and how much narcissism plays into this his character i find interesting because i feel like he's more about status he's less affluent than his Mm. peers 
he's selling drugs to make up the difference for his money and failing at that. He's very apathetic, but he's in love with the idea of people being obsessed with him. And I don't think he's as clueless about Paul Ian Somerhalder's um, obsession with him and love for him as it might be portrayed. I think. No, and especially the confrontation scene shows that. Yeah, I think he's very aware. I think he just loves the attention. You know, I think he loves being the it guy. I I don't think he gave a shit about Lauren. I think he found her attractive and wanted to have sex with her because she had that like virginal purity thing going on. But he really just liked the attention he got from her. And it's the same reason he slept with her roommate, Lara. I've been in that situation, honestly, like where I liked a guy who was clearly just in it for the attention. And that's and it's a thing. I think it's also the reason that he didn't notice the girl who actually was in love with him and right. sending him these anonymous love letters, even though she was always there on his periphery. She was always trying to interact with him. He never paid attention to her because she was not affluent and she was not traditionally beautiful. Right. Like Lauren is gorgeous. Undoubtedly. Lara right. is gorgeous and incredibly affluent, even if she's like a fucking drug addicted idiot. Paul is gorgeous and incredibly affluent and relatively popular from what we see. Like he moves in pretty big social circles, but this poor girl worked at the canteen and had very few friends and was not traditional, like didn't meet traditional beauty standards. So he didn't pay attention to her. Status is so key here because you can see that with obviously Patrick Bateman's character is obsessed with a certain kind of ladder climbing and Guys who are after women with the Manic Pixie Dream Girl is another way. It's not really status, but it's it's about adventure. It's about getting out of your regular life and being able to lift yourself into some higher form of life or see some path upwards. And But this is, all these stories have this very toxic relationship with that. I think what's really interesting about status and um, Tyler Durden's character is is that Tyler Durden's character really, when he meets Ed Norton's character, has no status. Like he's a fucking loser right. who robs like like factories for leftover lard so that he can. It's it's the status among men. It's not affluence. It's not success. It's not about ladder climbing at work like Patrick Bateman. It's literally just about men seeing you as the alpha in any given situation and the toxicity and misogyny that can come with that, but the male power fantasy that's centered around it. So it's it's like, I mean, Tyler Durden has no money. They live in a rat infested, like fucking tenement shithole. Mm-hmm. He steals fat from factories to make soap to sell to make like any kind of money but he just beats the shit out of other dudes and is like has a cult level like charisma about him that he's able to make these men become obsessed with him and bow down to him and that's what that's what Edward Norton's character wants he wants that confidence and that alpha status just because we're already on the topic, but I didn't mean to make this the uh, Fight Club episode, but <laughs> right. where I change over just to like say like what I do like about it is that there is a leftist bent that the movie tries to do, but it's it's very, this is the difficulty of it. It, all, it, it. it has an almost horseshoe theory idea, this idea that the far right and the far left are both just people who want to be very radical and they're looking to be do revolutionary violence regardless of 
what happens. They want to sow chaos to change society. But you can do that as a fascist or as a leftist rev revolutionary for the good of people, right? And, and what makes it change? And, and for me, I think from, uh, like, this was one of my favorite movies uh, about 15-ish years ago was really when I first started, like first watched it or 15, 20 years ago and, and loved it. And it, I still like it. But the reason I, I the politics of it has moved away from me because it's like, I think it's more important to first and foremost, look for empathy, look for vulnerable people that you're actually trying to help, right? These are the, the core, should be the core of the leftist position. But when you just look for revolutionary violence, just look for chaos, you end up with this weird individual obsession that I think Fight Club exemplar, uh, exemplifies that he's just sad about his life. And so he starts this revolution that probably has nothing to do with, to with really helping people. No, if anything, it's if anything, it's just to make himself look powerful right. in society, right? Like that's all the bullshit revolution is about. It's it's I'm weak and nobody gives a shit about me. So I want everyone to look at me and think I'm fucking powerful. Um, and that's that's really what it turns into. And that's what I mean by like toxic masculinity and the male power fantasy and how that's right. the central like theme for me in Fight Club. Um, and I do think it is a relatively centralized theme in American Psycho as well. But I think that I think that's in a different in a different kind of way. I think that more relates to like heteronormativity and like mm. um, sexual exploration money. amongst men and money and and affluence and and the complications yeah. that come with those two ty types of themes interacting. Right. Like affluent men in the 80s meeting like heteronormativity and the struggles between those two kind of power fantasies. It's also much more successful because of just how obviously terrible a person is. It's more successful, although people still idolize him a ton than Wolf on Wall Street, which has very much the uh, Fight Club problem to a way worse degree even for me. I really don't like Wolf on Wall Street because it feels like all it does is glorify um, uh, well, Balfoy's life. And, and even though there is uh, a critique in there, or yeah, even though there is a critique of his life. I think, I think that's a tougher one because while I do think Scorsese's intention was to make, was to turn Jordan Belfort's life and his story into a satire and into a critique of his lifestyle, the source material is a book written by Jordan Belfort as a motivational speaking tool oh, about yeah. how cool his life was and how he scapegoated himself out of like any real legitimate consequences. And he's still super rich and affluent and like, look how successful you can be by cutting corners and treating people like shit. So like, I think it's, it's more challenging to make a legitimate critique out of somebody's life when you're basing it on their autobiography that they wrote talking about how fucking cool they are, even though they're assholes. Like it, it, it's not as easy to do. Even though I didn't know it at the times, like I think the honestly the repressed homosexuality in both the original Fight Club book, which then translates to some degree into the movie, and in the uh, American Psycho, I think these helped to give those stories a bit more dimension to me that I found interesting, even though I couldn't pinpoint what it was at the time. And Rules of Attraction has the same feeling, although it's much more apparent in this one with with an actual gay character. And I really like that that form of energy, that look, that's not subtle isn't the right word because the, the movie rules direction is not subtle at all. No. But the underlying psychologies that are being critiqued are 
again, subtle isn't the right word, but are like, they aren't always fully articulated, like what's going on with each character or what's happening. And I like that it doesn't really have that clear of a message by the end too. I think just the chaos of the sexual attraction game and obsession and all these things, it it plays out in a way that just leaves you thinking. But all that being said, Wolf on Wall Street, Scorsese, right? Like, and um, the author, like Belford, it, 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 there's just nothing there for me. Like there's nothing that makes me, it's just all white men. It's all this thing, even though, even if there is a critique of it, it just doesn't come from an interesting place or have an interesting other layer no, to it. No, I mean, it. like when we already have Gordon Gecko and the literal movie called Wall Street, like did we need Wolf on Wall Street? No. Is The Wolf of Wall Street a technically good film? Yeah. I mean, it is. The soundtrack is amazing. The acting is very competent. The writing is good. Like, the cinematography is really excellent. It is a technically good film. Is it all that interesting or dynamic? Does it make any big strides from a movie like Wall Street with Michael Douglas? Not really. Like, it's the same movie, just with a real-life person in it instead of Gordon Gecko. Did we need that? No. Was it fun? I guess. Sure. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with enjoying it. But like read the actual book written by Jordan Belfort and you will legitimately see how unironically shitty he is. Like he is a fucking terrible person who thinks he's amazing. Right. Like he's got big small dick energy is what I will tell you. We need different voices. We need. I mean, people have been calling this like crazy, but it's like the critiques of our like society today cannot be coming from these these places anymore. Like it, they're just, they always end up being reappropriated or just being not good. So even if these things are technically good, even if they have interesting aspects, it's like, we're ready to move on. Like we mm-hmm. need new, uh, new ideas, new things. And, you know, Parasite about capitalism, about status, about these things, it's, it's great. It has the same level of technical perfection and um, greatness as a Wolf of Wall Street but also is, is, is from a di- slightly different perspective. A, a very different perspective. Plus, you also get yeah. the cultural nuances. Yeah. So that's so interesting. I really you hear that like that one. Did you hear that they're making a TV show? Oh, of Parasite? Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I did not. Yeah, it's not, it's not going to be the same story, but it's going to take place in the same universe mm. as Bong Joon-ho's Parasite. Very cool. Yeah. So I don't really I don't totally understand what that means for what the story will be about, but obviously it will still deal with like themes of of class and like classism and and wealth disparity and stuff. I I assume I don't know what the hell else that universe could be talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I did want to mention one more thing which is we had an episode that didn't work out for technical reasons, but I think is a somewhat interesting comparison of watching this one movie called Chunking Express which is a Hong Kong movie about two love stories and the not un, they're not unrequited per se, uh, but they're, they're sort of missed connections or long-term difficulties. And what I'll say is that although not nearly as entertaining, Rules of Attraction was a very fun movie when I was young and very hot, sexy, fun right now, even though it's very dark at times, very understandable references. Chunking Express is much more experimental, much more fragmented, uh, much more sort of montage pieces. It doesn't really have a coherent storyline at all. Um, and that's because it actually has a weird story. It was connected to 
another movie. So it's like sort of a third story of another movie. And that other movie was already a side project. So it's truly like a side project of a side project. So it, it ends up being feeling like a lot of scrapped pieces together. But a lot of people, uh, and this is why I want to watch it, a lot of people online talk about just loving, just feeling that love connection or feeling that the way the atmosphere of that movie plays out into things. I didn't truly feel that, but I glimpsed moments of it. And that's a thing that I like finding in movies where it didn't work for me, but I do look for like a different angle on something, a different, the way an atmosphere, the way a characters play out to do something different with love. And Rules of Attraction has its own version of that, a little more mainstream though still, even though it tries a few experimental things. I also think, I I feel like for me, the reason Rules of Attraction was more effective than Chunking Express is because you you have a central figure or in some way how these stories interconnect. Yeah. And Chunking Express didn't have that. It it's had two separate two stories. Separate stories, but there was no way in which they connected in the middle or at the end or anything. So it, it I don't know, it made it feel more, almost more like a, a, a vignette and a music video than an actual movie. Yeah. Whereas you know, Rules of Attraction or any of these, you know, movies that we've seen that are a a series of stories and they interconnect at some point, like, like the ice storm, Ang Lee's ice storm does the same kind of thing. Um, there's always some kind of a central theme or a central figure or these characters cross paths in some way that connects it. Um, and it, and it gives you some sense of coherence in that movie formula that you just don't get from Chunking Express. Absolutely. Visually. I think Chunking Express is gorgeous, mm. but the stories they weren't engaging to me. No, there's the plot is is such a yeah is such a mess there. I will say though, I think it's it, love stories in particular can have moments that yeah this this vignette style can work very well. Even Shadow and Bone has two that I was going to mention. There's so I said that there's two gay stories in it, and actually one is very subtle in a way. You only see it for very short moments, and the characters aren't main characters, but it's two Grisha who are just you know like have been Grisha for a long time and uh, are two presumably gay guys. And they just have a casual relationship going on. You see them at a party, just like one's trying to feed food to the other. And and they, and the other guy is just like, oh, like, like don't do this in front of people sort of thing. But not in a like, I'm scared of being open about being gay, but just in that normal, playful way a relationship can be. So that like moments like that, it's funny how romantic romance, you can feel a chemistry between characters. And I'm like, I just, I was into their relationship just from those two seconds of seeing them. And that's a cool kind of feeling of representation. To me, it was actually even more successful than the actual gay sex scene, which a lot of people raved about in it, which was very hot. And it's two hot characters, Jesper and the stable boy, just getting it on. It, there, to me, there wasn't that much more magic to it other than just this like momentary. But what I do like about that is that we're in a place in cinema where you can have a shallow like one night stand moment yep. between two gay characters or two gender queer characters or whatever. No, I still very much appreciated it. <laughs> yeah, well, but we have those for for straight characters all the time. We do that constantly yeah. where it's just like casual sex thrown in for no reason between two side characters that you barely know. So it's it's cool that we're in that place and I think the way Shadow and Bone d did it, it didn't feel exploitative even though it was mm -hmm. just an explicitly sexual scene it didn't feel like it was just shoved in there for representation's sake 
or to um, make people uncomfortable or anything like that. It was just like, this guy's gay and he's having sex with somebody because he wants to. In terms of storyline, the one that was most effective, the most effective love story for me was actually, I don't remember their characters' names. But the Grisha and the Druskela? Yeah. Um, so yeah. sort of a witch hunter, you could say, type character from a, a Nordic representation country. Fjerden. Yeah. And um, My memory is so much better than yours. <laughs> Nina. Her name was Nina. Oh, yeah. No, I definitely don't remember the names. But yeah, Nina, so uh, she's a Grisha and so she's connected to other main characters. But like her storyline, it seems like it's going to be more prominent later because there's a big moment with her by the end of the season. But in this mm-hmm. in this season, like she, she this periphery story is she's just captured and um, going to be tried and hung basically as a as a um, Grisha. And, but they get shipwrecked and she starts this love story with the her captor. And it is magical. Like they yeah, just feel straight amazing up, together. It's straight up enemies to lovers. And it feels very much like that burgeoning romance um in the first season of Outlander between mm. Claire and Jamie when he when like the um Frasers or like the yeah, the Frasers capture her right. because she's English. So they're taking her captive and then they fall in love. It's, the, it's like the exact same thing. It's just straight up enemies to lovers and it's precious and they're just like angels and I love them. <laughs> and they're both gorgeous. Yeah. And coming back to rules of attraction though, like none of the relationships are healthy in any way. Feel like you you want them to happen. But I also kind of love that because it's college yeah. and it's like so True. rare that you have a legitimately healthy relationship in college. I mean, it happens. I've known people who have met in college and now they're married. They have wonderful lives together and that's amazing. But it's so infrequent that that happens. Mostly people are partying too much and fucking around and, you know, having obsessive crushes on people that are terrible for them or getting involved in friends with benefits situations with like toxic men or toxic women that treat them like shit so it's like it's very accurate to like what we all go through in college even though this is this movie came out in 2002 it definitely has way more drug use than i think most people are used to in college although i'm not crazy affluent so i don't know maybe these rich kids Mm -hmm. are like super hopped up on blow all the time i'm not sure and there's a lot of like weird like eyes wide shut theme parties in the movie. But other than that, like the interactions between the characters, the toxicity, the like shit talking and gossiping and sex, that's all very real. Mm. Yeah, I I really enjoyed it. I was so glad to like uh, piece together what I remembered of this movie from my childhood and like because it was, it was a weirdly it's an intense movie to watch when you're young. I know. I I think I watched this when I was like 14 or something and it gave me a very skewed understanding of what college would be like as an adult. I was like, man, I better get ready to party. And like, I can't believe there's like this much sex happening. Um, Although I am willing to admit like pretty much everyone I knew was having way more like, I don't want to say unhealthy, but just like risky sexual experiences in college than they probably should have. Yeah, it definitely skewed my perspective on what an actual college experience would be like. But, you know, I mean, 90210 made me think high school was going to be way more dramatic than it actually mm-hmm, was. Yeah, so yeah. Um, I definitely had in my high school to college summer, I was definitely like fantasizing about like what 
university would be like and like all the different things I would do. And none of that happened or very I little bit until to, later. Like, I mean, I definitely partied way more in high school and way harder in high school than I did in college. Yeah, I never partied at all in high school. So anything in, in, <laughs> in university was going to be a big jump. But uh, but I didn't until like my third or fourth year of university really get into. Oh, yeah. Doing much. I hung out with all the like like party party and burnout kids so Mm. but I do want to I you know I I, and I'm not even sure how much it's related but this this talk of romance and these talk about things um really connecting to it I really loved the joiner movie to Chungking Express Chungking Express one of the other problems from it was very repetitive to me in comparison to its companion movie Fallen Angels which I would super recommend director is Warkar Wai Hong Kong director and you know he's I think he's the most famous director from Hong Kong and just they have an energy and a feel and that indie vibe that I actually think matches up with this early 2000s late 90s stuff but in it in its own in a very different way kind of like comparing parasite to and any other critiques of capitalism right it's like it both is clearly in the same realm of ideas but it's a very different vibe a very uh, different uh change up so just a movie I've uh I've been thinking about a lot and connected to this and connected to Secretary as well, another sexual tension uh, ideas and the different ways toxic relationships can happen or in that way, in a certain way, a healing relationship. I think we need to watch Go next because you've never seen it. <laughs> I've tra- as if, if it's another one on the same uh, wavelength. Oh, it is. It absolutely is. I've talked about it before on this podcast. Go has um, a very young Katie Holmes Mm. Uh, Sarah Polly and a very like Timothy Oliphant at his hottest. It's great. And then Breck and Meyer, I think is in it. Um, but it's, it's similar, really similar vibe to Rose of Attraction. It's less bleak. It's more like rave culture, um, nineties, two thousands rave culture. And it's just a bunch of kids, living in rave culture and experimenting with drugs and sexually and having like these weird interconnected stories between each other and like the toxicity uh, of that culture, but also the found family kind of vibe that's within it. Um, And it's like super fast paced and weird and intense and really, really fun. Yeah. Not weirdly because it makes perfect sense because another uh, repressed homosexual energy one, one of my favorite books of all time on the road has a similar dynamic between a sort of gayish character and a straightish character. And for road trip or sexual tension, stuff like that, a movie we've talked about a few times and maybe we'll do for the pod at sometimes is Itumama Tambien is also another one that I watched young and had a very awakening feeling experience from it. The way that those characters are very open about uh, the dangers and the excitement about the lifestyle they they were coming of age into. And it also has a... Very young Diego Luna and very young Gail Garcia Bernal, both looking adorable. Yes. Characters look amazing. I love Diego Luna. But yeah, Rules of Attraction. So handsome. Loved it. It, it It's not, but I, I knew it was never going to be. It's not a perfect movie. It's. No. Yeah, it, it's just, it's very interesting for what it is. And that's what we're here to bring, right? Like. These aren't supposed to be Oscar winners, but they're not supposed to be blockbusters either. And I think this movie is exactly the vibe we love. Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely a movie made for like young adults, you know, like like tw- mm. like 18, 19, 20 year olds. 
Um, it's probably not a movie that you should watch when you're 15, and it is definitely not, a movie but... that both of us watched when we were 15. Yeah. <laughs> but that's the thing, right? Like, you're going to end up, you, you should end up watching some stuff like this, connecting to some stuff like this when you're young, because... You, you learn a little bit about what you're in for, even though you learn some false, many, many false things. But, you know, the romantic family friendly version is also uh, false in its own mm-hmm. thing. So it's, it's good to have different perspectives. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I have a soft spot for this movie because yeah. of when I watched it. I do think if it's the first if you've never seen it before and it's the first time you ever watch it, it's going to feel pretty dated. Yes. But I, I think the it's it's really a character driven movie. The plot is kind of disjointed and weird at times. Yeah. Um so I think even though it is dated, if you can get engaged with these characters, you're really gonna enjoy what the movie does. My favorite Vanderbeek, though, overall, even though we hated it, he hated his character in so many things. I still love him. Always he's always very charming somehow, but is him in the B word in Apartment 23 is such a fun you character. You just say the bitch in Apartment 23. No, that's too much for my Christian, my Catholic mind. <laughs> I, man, I said cunt like four times before we started recording. <laughs> See, I just, so. I just, just let that glide. I'm, I'm the one bringing the, also, you're, yeah, the explicit it, rating to this podcast. That's a different word for people like whose whose parents are like from from other than America because in Australia and in <laughs> and in England area you're not from Irish area it's it's a it's a lighter word here it's an extremely violent word. <laughs> well, it's also like a border like it's a derogatory term used for my gender, so yeah. I feel like I have every right to say it yeah, if I course. want to. Yeah. I don't call people that, but, but like even I I. I know I'm allowed to say, but I don't like the F word and I, I have used it, but I really am just like, let's just let that go. I thought for a second you meant fuck. And I was like, why can't you say that? Yeah. We need to let fuck go. I've said that like so many times. Why have you never said anything? But no, clearly you meant the slur. That makes a lot more sense. (laughs) Yeah. My brain, like. I swear so much, and yet I have so much innocence left. (laughs) I knew I I was being a bit ambiguous, but I'm like, I'm just going to say it as because I I don't want to say the actual word. So, no, I I mean, yeah. Say F slur, and I'll know what you mean. But if you say F word, I'm going to assume you mean fuck. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, you can follow us on at fanslabpod uh, on Twitter. And some other stuff uh, with their own little things, but on Instagram, TikTok. Yeah. Uh, you can find us in our link tree. Yeah. We have a link tree. But yeah, we're on we're on Twitter. We're on TikTok. We're on Instagram. We'd love to connect with you. We should at least start like telling a joke or something. <laughs> I don't know any good jokes, though. Other than my life. <laughs> uh, there we go. Okay. <laughs> Talk to you later. Bye. Bye.